Go ahead and have a seat. Um, so thankful that you're here. I know it's Labor Day weekend. I know you could have been anywhere. You could be down there in Panama City getting COVID with everybody else, but you're here. You're here, and I'm thankful for that. Um, and this morning, this morning, I, I was kind of thinking about what what should I preach? What should I share? And uh, I don't know. I started thinking about it. And 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 here's here's the thing: Has anybody in here? Brave enough to admit there's been times like you thought God was never going to show up. Has there been a time in your life where you've been, you'd be brave enough to say, I thought God was just not going to deliver. I thought he was running late. Now, I'll be brave enough and say, yes, absolutely, I've been there. I've been there multiple times in my life where I thought God either didn't care or he wasn't worried about it or he wasn't listening. Maybe you feel like he was running late or maybe, maybe you're somebody, men, we're worse at this. We are the worst. You're fixers, right? We like to fix things. And so your wife comes home and she starts telling you about everything that's going on at work and all the problems she's having with a coworker and her boss is this and her boss is that. And you hear her and you're like, well, what you ought to do is this, this, and this. She don't want to hear that. Well, she don't want you to fix it. What she wants you to do? Just listen. Just listen. You just pay, you shake, you shake your head and say, uh-huh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She don't want you to fix it. But men, we're in our DNA, we're fixers. We like to fix things. Even if we can't fix it, we'll at least throw a wrench at it. You know, we'll try to do something. And sometimes here's what we get guilty of is that we try to fix things in our life and we do everything that we can do. We exhaust all possibilities. We do all that we can do. And at the last possible moment, God, can you help me? How many of y'all have ever used God as a last resort? Yeah, a prayer as a la- absolutely. And so here's the thing. I think we're all equally in the same boat this morning. I think we can all relate. And on this particular day in the book of Mark, and if you have your Bibles, we'll be in, in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And on this particular day in the book of Mark, we're going to find that he is uh, interacting with some people. And we see, we see two different types of people that are coming and intersecting at the very feet of Jesus. Jesus is swarmed with all kinds of people. They're pushing against him. They're trying to get to Jesus. But there's two main characters in this story we're going to look at today. Completely different in every single way. But they're both trying to get to Jesus. They have a need. And so this morning, if you will, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 21 through verse 43. Now, here's the deal. If you'd like to take notes... Um, I, I, I failed. I failed. I had an outline. I did. I had it printed out. And I left it in my truck. And so uh, you're going to have to use your own pen and paper this morning. Or you can type it in your phone. Just don't be checking your Instagram and all that stuff too. All right, so here you go. Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through 43. My title this morning is, When He's Too Late, or in parentheses, you can put, It Takes Faith. It Takes Faith. Verse 21. When Jesus was passed over again by ship on the other side, Much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet, and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter. Now, let's pause right there for a second. How many of y'all have a little daughter? Now, your your little daughter might be 35 years old, but she's still your little girl, right? I have a little girl. Uh, Last time we was here, she's on a little knee scooter. I see she's upgraded. She's now just in the boot. She's walking around. But that's my little girl. And he's coming to Jesus and he's saying, my little girl, she's sick. Now, how many of you would do anything you could to get something, some kind of help for your little girl? This man's desperate. 
And listen to what he says. He says, my little daughter, my little girl, lieth at the point of death. He said, I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. You're pushing against him, trying to get to him. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and spent all that she had, this illness has literally bankrupted her. She has nothing. She spent all she had and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. How would you like to spend everything you got, be bankrupt, and nothing help, and just get worse? Desperate. She's desperate. Now, verse 26 uh, verse 27, sorry. And when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And in this moment, I would be exactly like the disciples. There's people everywhere pushing against him. And Jesus stops in the middle of that crowd and says, who touched me? This is what the, this is what the disciples said. He says, the disciples said unto him, thou seest the multitude thronging thee and sayest, who touched me? He's like, Jesus, there are people everywhere. Man, people bumping you. Who touched me? <laughs> like, everybody touched you, Jesus. And so here's the thing. Keep on looking. Verse 32. And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, daughter. Now, I read this last night, and I realized this man up the Jairus, the synagogue man, had a daughter that was sick. Guess what? This is his daughter. How does it, it feel to be called a daughter of the king or a son of the king? He says, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? It's too late. He's too late. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. He, and when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make you this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumai. It's Aramaic, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was the age of twelve years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment, and he charged them straightly that no man should know it, and commanded that something should be given her to eat. So here's the deal. We have two main characters in this story. The first character introduces Jairus. Jairus is the leader of the local synagogue. And now what I love about this is we have to first understand what the synagogue is. The synagogue would be understood like a community center. It's like a local city community center. They would have school at the synagogues, they would have meals at the synagogue, they'd have worship at the synagogue, they would have courtroom hearings at the synagogue. It was like the local community gathering place. This is why Jesus loved going to synagogues, because people were always there. It was always full. It was always people there doing something. And so Jesus would teach at the synagogues. In fact, you read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it tells us that Jesus went through Galilee teaching in the synagogues. 
Very first place we see him after, the, after his birth, the very next time he's mentioned is at the age of 12. And where do his parents find him? In the synagogue. He loved the synagogue. That's where the people were. And so there is no doubt that this man, Jairus, could have heard about Jesus, could have seen Jesus, could have even heard Jesus teach in the local synagogue because Jairus' title would have been like community coordinator. Okay, He was over the local synagogue, so he had to make sure all these events, and the facilities, and everything was ready. He was the one who organized everything. He was the local head man over the synagogue. And Jesus loved to hang around synagogues, but in verse 22, we see that this man Jairus comes to Jesus And whether or not he believed Jesus was who he said he was, he was desperate. He was my little daughter, my little girl. And so he comes to Jesus, he was desperate. And it says he fell down at his feet, in verse 23, fell down at his feet and said, I pray thee, basically saying, I beg you, please come. Now, now here's the thing, here's the thing. I I don't know about you, but this seems like a pretty serious need. And as they begin to walk, it says a big crowd formed, they begin to throng him, begin to push against him. Now put yourself in this daddy's shoes. Your daughter is sick and dying. You've done everything you know to do. You go get Jesus. And on your way to get to your house, people start pushing against him, slowing him down. Now, if I'm daddy and people are getting in the way, what's daddy going to do? Stop. Get out the way. We got to go. Come on. Come on, Jesus, please. Y'all stop, please. And people are slowing him down. My daughter's sick. Hurry. Hurry! And people are pushing against him and they're slowing him down. Come on, let's go. Let's get out of the way. People everywhere. Two different events happening at the same time. Two different storylines. Jairus, the woman with the twelve, uh, the, the, the man with the twelve-year-old daughter that's dying, and then we have this unnamed woman enter into the scene. A woman who had a disease for twelve years, bankrupt, had nothing left. Last resort, Jesus. She enters into the scene. But here's what I want to point out real quick. Both these individuals, Jairus and the woman, had to leave something behind in order to get to the feet of Jesus. And now I want to challenge you. If you take notes, if this is your time to turn in and tune in, this is, this is a great time to do it. Because we all in this room have some stuff we're going to have to leave behind if we're really going to get to Jesus if we're really going to get to his feet, if we're really going to grab a hold of him, if we're really going to get his attention, there's some things we might have to leave behind in order to get there. And so let's take a look at this man named Jairus. Some of the things he had to leave behind are this. First of all, this man had to leave behind his prejudice. His prejudice. In the Jewish community, Jesus was not really received very well, was he? I mean, he had some of his followers, but, but Jesus at one time wept over Jerusalem because they would not receive him. And then the ones who thought that they were his advocates, his friends, at the very last moment shouted, crucify him. And the Jewish people, the, the, the people there, his own people did not receive him very well. And Jairus, being the leader of the local synagogue, no doubt had some prejudice against this man. Because he would have been in contact with the high priest. He would have been in contact with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. All of them hated Jesus. And so in order for Jairus to get to Jesus, he had to put aside some prejudice. They were critical of Jesus. And to be a leader in Jairus' position over a Jewish community center and to make such a bold and public move as to find himself at the feet of Jesus, begging him, come see my daughter. That's huge. 
That's huge. He had to lay aside some, some prejudice because there's some serious backlash that could happen if people saw him at the feet of Jesus. Second thing he had to put aside was his pride. Now, if we're honest, we all got some pride in our life. We got something that's, that we think that, you know, it's ours or I'm too big for this or I, I, I need this. We got all of us battle with pride some point in our life. But this man had a job to worry about. His position, his reputation. He's a leader in the community. And all of a sudden, he's having to push that aside. What would people think if they saw me with Jesus? See, here's the thing. What, 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 happens? what happens with us at our workplace? What if people actually see me read my Bible at work? What are they going to say about me? What, what, if people, what about those in school? What are people going to think about me if they see me in a locker room with my Bible? Are they going to make fun of me? And so sometimes we have to push through the pride. We gotta, we'd have to push through what people think of us in order to get real serious about who Jesus is and to really get at his feet. And so maybe some of us in this room need to lay aside some pride. This man laid, around, laid aside some pride. I wonder how many of us hide our faith or our affiliation with Jesus just because we want to keep our position and our reputation intact. The third thing he pushed aside was his piety. What is another word for piety? Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Here's the thing. Jewish people, especially in that community, were very self-righteous. They, they, they exemplified what the law should be. They made laws in order to follow other laws. Right, they loved the law. And the better they were at following the laws, the more prestigious they were in the community. And there was a whole lot of tradition that didn't mean anything to the scriptures. They just kept adding tradition on top of tradition on top of tradition. And this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus came in to, disrupt, to, to, to destroy and disrupt tradition. The Pharisees hated it. He would heal a man on the Sabbath. You can't do that. It's the Sabbath. He's like, wait, I just made a blind man see, and you're upset because it's on the Sabbath? See, this is what I love about Jesus. He, he totally destroyed tradition. And this man was a very traditional man. And to come to Jesus means he had to lay down his own self-righteousness to pick up Christ's righteousness. He had to lay down his own observance of the things and the traditions. He says, let me just pause right here. There's a lot of people in a lot of churches that are very religious. Very religious. You know, you know how to read the Bible. You've been in, you were in church nine months before you was born. But let me tell you, if you was born at the altar and the pastor picked you up and spanked your little naked butt and the first word that came out of your mouth was Jesus, it still ain't good enough. But some of us cling on to our own self-righteousness, our own ability, our own works, our own effort, and we think that's good enough. But this man had to realize, I don't need this. I need Jesus. I've tried this, and it's not working. And so I had to put aside this in order to get to Jesus. And so I wonder, I wonder if some people in this room that maybe have some religiosity about them, you've been claiming works and effort, and I've been in church my whole life. Can I tell you, your mama and daddy's faith ain't going to get you into heaven. I don't care if your grandpa was a pastor. I don't care if your uncle was a deacon. That's not going to be good enough. You need to find Jesus on your own. And so put aside the religious works, put aside the tradition, put aside all that religious effort and get to the feet of Jesus is what this man had to do. 
So this man had to put aside prejudice, his pride, and his piety to get to Jesus. He was a very upstanding citizen. He was a man in the community. He had a reputation. He had a job. He had a position, right? Now we get to the woman, this unnamed woman. So, so unimportant, we don't even know her name. Don't even know her name. None, none reputation whatsoever. But she had to push through some things to get to Jesus too. She had to push through her shame. You see, in Leviticus, we find that with her certain disorder, her certain disease, she's considered unclean. She can't be part of the community. She can't even go to temple worship. She can't even live in her own home around her own friends and her own family. She's an exile living outside the city walls. Because this issue involved blood, and blood in that period, if you come in contact with blood, you're immediately considered unclean. And if anybody else comes in contact with that blood, they're considered unclean. You're, you're like a leper, unclean. And so her whole life, she's spending outside the city walls. She had some shame. She lived outside the gates, and she carried around this burden of shame. She's an outsider, and she carried it around. And to come to Jesus was a big deal for her. It was a huge deal for her because she had to push through the shame of everything that she's carrying in order to get to Jesus. And here's the thing. There's a lot of people carrying around some shame and some regret and some, some man, I got some past mistakes and I got some skeletons in the closet you don't know about. And man, I got some stuff I'm battling you don't even know. And listen, I don't care about that stuff. Jesus don't care. He's just saying, come here. But we're so guilty. We're so burdened with it. But I can't. But if he knows what I've done, I can't go there. See, this is what this woman had to do. She had to push through the shame of who she was in order to get to Jesus. I wonder if there's anything holding you back this morning to get to Jesus. Any kind of guilt, bitterness, unforgiveness, sin that you're just holding on to thinking, it's too big, I can't let it go. This woman had to push through it, her shame to get, she had to push through her secrecy. That's the second thing she had to push through. She had to live in the shadows. A woman of no reputation had to live in the shadows because to violate Levitical law was a death sentence for her. If she got caught being where she should not have been, if she got caught being in the community, being inside someplace she should not have been, they could have literally stoned her to death. And for her to come to Jesus means she had to come out of the shadows and make her faith public. Too many times we have believers living in the shadows, not making your your faith a big deal, not putting it on the forefront, not making Jesus the centerpiece of your home. Listen, if you really want to get a hold of Jesus, it's time to step out of the shadows. It's time to step out of the secrecy and take some ownership of your faith and make it public. And this woman had to step out of her secrecy because she was desperate. She says, I don't want to live there anymore. Her, her faith was louder than her fear. Faith was so much louder than her fear. I'm afraid, but if I don't get to Jesus, nothing else is going to work. And the last thing she pushed through was her seclusion, her seclusion. She was isolated from everybody, her friends, her family, her community. Her disease made her an outsider. She had no success with doctors. She had no more money. She's at the end of her rope. This was the last resort. Nothing else mattered. She had to come to Jesus. She had to acknowledge Jesus. I've done everything. I've tried everything. I've found no hope. I've found no answers. And she comes to Jesus publicly. Now, here's the thing. To come to Jesus publicly also makes her problem public. 
It makes her problem public. And there's a lot of people afraid that take that step to go to Jesus because they're afraid of, what if people know what I've been through? What if people find out my past? What if people find out my secrets? Can I tell you? Can I please tell you? It's better to make every issue public with Jesus so you can reign and live with him for all eternity than to be a hypocrite your whole life and go to hell with all the other hypocrites. I can tell you it's a whole lot easier and a whole lot better for you to make everything public and to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm messed up. I've got problems. And so to come to Jesus not only means your faith is public, but it means your problem is public too. Here's our problem. We're sinners. Look to your neighbor and say, you're a sinner. It's okay, they know. Turn to your other neighbor. Tell them you're a sinner too. Yeah, they know. It's fine. Hey, guess what? The, the foot at the ground of the cross is all level. Uh, it's all level at the ground of the cross. So here's what I want you to know. We're going to have to take ownership that we're messed up and that we're sinners and we can't do it on our own. And you might have a whole lot of pride. You might have a whole lot of prejudice. You might have a, little, a whole lot of piety. You might be toting a whole lot of shame around. You might have a whole lot of secrets. And you might be trying to live in seclusion. But you're going to have to push through that to get to Jesus. You're going to have to push through some things. So let's keep moving on. Let's keep moving on. So here's what happens. Verse 32. All right, sorry, I'm sorry, let's back up. Verse 27, verse 27. And when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall behold. That's faith. If I can just touch his clothes, that's enough. If I just touch just, just the fabric, it's good enough. So she reaches in, touches his clothes. And verse 29, and straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt her body that she was healed of that plague. Hey, that's awesome. Amen. Hallelujah. Immediately she's like, oh, I'm better. How would you feel for 12 years you've been battling this thing and in a moment, you're better, you're whole. Now, now, now look what happens next. Verse 30, and Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? Now this thing, you're a woman who's been living in shame, secrecy, and seclusion this whole time for 12 years, and he stops. Can you imagine what she felt? Like her, her heart pounding. Who touched me? I just imagine, how would she have felt in that moment? She's about, to, she's about to get called out by Jesus. So, this is what happens. His disciples again said, Jesus, everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? But verse 32, I never saw this. I read this a hundred times, but never saw this until recently. Look what, how specific. And he looked round about to see, finish it. Look round about to see her. He knew he knew who it was. He knew who it was. Now, here's the question I have. If she got the healing and he knew who it was, why did he stop? Why did he stop? I was reading, I'm like, he could have kept walking. Remember, he's on a mission. He's got to get to Jairus' house. His daughter's dying, and, and yet he stops. Again, here, I'm, I'm Jairus. What are you stopping for? <laughs> She good? Let's go. <laughs> I gotta go to my daughter's house next. What are you doing? And she stop. He stops in his tracks. And I was like, I'm thinking, I'm, 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 I have a quandary here. Why did he stop? Why did he stop? And then it came to me. And if you take notes, this is a good time to take notes. Because I was thinking, God, why did you stop? 
And he gave me two things, two reasons why he stopped. Number one, she wanted this woman to know and to understand you were healed not from my garment, but from me. It was not the touch of the garment that healed you. It was the touch of me that healed you. He wanted this woman to understand that this was, this was not about some kind of superstitious garment. Because here's the reality. Even in our day today, we have some very superstitious people. They, 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 they bury saints in their front yard to sell a house. All right? They, they, they have a bumper sticker on the back of their car. It says, has a little fish symbol. That makes you better, I guess. I don't know. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. Somebody's going to be out there with a razor blade later. <laughs> but sometimes we see people with cross necklaces, and, and somehow we think that these religious icons have some kind of supernatural divine power in them. We have these preachers on TV, send me 1999, you can get this old sweaty prayer cloth in the mail. It'll, it'll, whatever's hurting you, it'll heal you. I'm like, man, put that old nasty thing in the trash. Nobody wants that. Let me give you a perfect example. When I was in Israel, I was in Israel in January, and they take us to multiple spots. Everything's supposed. This is the supposed place where Jesus did this. This is the supposed place where Jesus did this. And so there's two locations where they think Jesus was actually buried. One is called the Garden Tomb. The other one, I don't even remember this name, because here's why. The Garden Tomb, there's something about that place. If you ever get to go to Israel and do one of those holy tours, and they take you to the Garden Tomb, you'll know what I'm talking about. It just felt different. Man, it was just... I couldn't stop crying. I'm like, Man, my eyes are sweaty. What is going on? I mean, I was just so emotional. It was such an emotional place. I get to the other place, which was a lot of people believe this is the spot, and they built this monstrous Catholic church on top of it. And inside this Catholic church is this stone. And they say this is where they believe they laid the body of Jesus to prepare him to be buried into the tomb. And I'm looking at this stone. I'm just kind of against the wall. And I'm a people watcher. I don't know if you watch people. I judge people. You know. So I'm a people watcher. And I'm watching. And there's this man. I kid you not. This is what he's got a bag, a big bag of necklaces. And he pours the necklaces out on this stone. And he does this. Just kind of mixes them up. And he picks them up, puts them back in the bag. I'm like, what is he doing? I'm watching. What is he doing? And it dawns on me. He's going to go sell these necklaces to tell people they touched the burial stone of Jesus. Now they're supernatural, divine, and powerful. So in this moment, I love what Jesus does because he stops this woman and says, it's not my garments that are powerful, it's me. I want you to understand, anything you want in this life is not going to come from a trinket. It's not going to come from a piece of paper. It's not going to come from a cloth. It's not going to come from a bumper sticker. It's going to come from Jesus. All right, and this, what this, that's why he stopped. You need to understand, woman, it was me. Second reason he stopped was this. He wanted her to understand that it was her faith, not her touch, that healed her. It was your faith, not your touch. Because faith has a face. He says, woman, I want you to understand. Your faith is personal. It wasn't your touch that made you whole. See, faith is not an idea. It's not a religious exercise. It's not a cross on your necklace. It's not a bumper. Faith is personal. And it was this woman's faith that unleashed healing power in her life and on her body. And we have to be careful not to make our faith about anything else other than Jesus. Other than Jesus. It's not anything other than him. It's not superstition. It's not religious exercise. It's not following a bunch of rules. Faith is a relationship. 
And he wanted to know, he wanted to turn around and see her and say, woman, and whole. Now look what he tells, he he calls her daughter. He makes eye contact with her. Daughter, what does he say? Thy what? What's it up? I'm sorry, verse 34. Verse 34. Daughter, thy what? Faith hath made thee whole. Go and be in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now, as I'm reading all this, it seems like time is kind of moving pretty quickly, right? Time's going pretty fast. It didn't seem like this takes very long for all this to transpire. They're walking, woman comes up, gets touched, go in peace, you're whole now. But then the timeline gets interrupted because apparently a lot, has, a lot of time has been ate up during this point. Enough time that a friend, a servant of the house of Jairus, has enough time to come down and meet them, and he tells them the news. Look at verse 34. Remember, he says, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. And then verse 35. While he was still speaking, while he yet spake, Jesus is still talking. There came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Imagine being this daddy. And you just got the news. Daughter's dead. He says, why trouble us the master anymore? It's dead. Imagine how you would have felt in that moment being dead. What would you have felt? I would have been angry. I would have been angry. Because sometimes I feel like God doesn't answer fast enough. I feel like God should be more on my schedule. <laughs> God, you need to act when I want you to act. Imagine this. Imagine this, watching someone else get the miracle you wanted for your daughter. Mm. Imagine what that must have felt like. Maybe he was really angry. Maybe he was immediately deflated. Has your faith ever been bruised and deflated? You've prayed for something and it didn't come true. You prayed for something and it didn't come out the way you wanted to. And, and, and remember, this was a huge move for Jairus. He had to lay aside his pride, his piety, and his prejudice to get to Jesus. He made a huge move to make a public move to get to Jesus. And now he's told his daughter is dead. He, what was the point of all that? That was stupid. What was the... Has there been moments that you've prayed for something and it didn't happen? What happened to your faith in that moment? Well, it gets bruised, don't it? It gets a little broken. Maybe he instantly felt a little guilt and sadness. I can only imagine if I was in this father's shoes and I sought out the only person I thought that could do something about it, I would blame myself. Maybe I would have come earlier. Maybe I wouldn't have waited to the last minute. I don't think this is a sickness that all of a sudden happened overnight. I believe she was sick for a long time and it progressively got worse and worse and worse. And I'm thinking, if I was a dad, I'd been like, I could have come a month ago. I could have come two weeks ago. Why did I wait so long? Maybe he felt a lot of self-blame and pity. But we do know one thing he did feel. Verse 36. And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of synagogue, look what he says. He says, be not what? He was afraid. Jesus wouldn't have said that unless he was. He says, be not afraid. So the, the remedy to fear is what? He says, do not be afraid, but only The remedy to your fear is faith. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Have faith. I love, I love this simple statement because no matter what you feel in those moments where there's confusion and unanswered questions and unanswered, just when you feel like you're, you're isolated, when you feel like there's no hope, here's the, here's the remedy to all that. Just believe. 
Now, I have a question for you. What's harder to believe? What's harder to believe, that Jesus can make your sick daughter better or that Jesus can make your dead daughter alive? What's harder to believe? Make your dead daughter alive. This was a crossroad moment for, for Jairus because his friend has just told him, your daughter is dead. Jesus says, don't worry, believe. So much evidence here, Jesus. She's dead. How many times have we, personal experience, looking at my bills versus my bank account? (laughs) All right? This number is a whole lot bigger than this number. And Jesus says, don't worry, I got it. I'm like, you see the numbers over here? Like, there's an extra comma on this side. (laughs) I don't got no commas on this side, Jesus. How are we going to? And he says, just, it'll be okay. It's going to be okay. Now, here's a hard thing. When there's so much evidence going against your faith and you still are, are trying to believe, that's hard, isn't it? When there's so much stacked up on this side and yet Jesus still says, just have faith, you're like, but it doesn't make sense. Can I tell you, faith don't make sense. It don't make a lick of sense sometimes. But he says, just have faith. And you're like, God, he just said my daughter's dead. I don't so this was a huge moment of crossroads for Jairus. And look what happens. Verse 37, he says, only believe. Verse 37, and he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler. So the only way he can come to the house of the ruler of Jairus is if who took him there? Jairus. So Jesus says, don't worry, have faith. And so Jairus, come on Jesus, let's go. He takes, that's a huge step of faith. That's a huge step. I'll take you to my house. That's a huge step of faith because he feels like it's over with, game over. But yet he takes a step to his house, bringing Jesus with him. And he has to decide who is he going to believe, my friend or Jesus. And he chose to believe Jesus. Good choice. Good choice. Every time. Sometimes I think we limit what God can do. God is not the God of small, attainable things. God is the God of big, impossible things. He's the God who can move heaven. He can shake mountains. Jesus calls this young girl. Look what happens. He gets to her house. He kicks everybody out. Everybody's there and crying, mourning. This is enough time for everybody to gather and start crying. They're crying. And he says, what are you crying about? She's only sleeping. And they laugh at him. You're silly. (laughs) She's dead. And then he kicks them all out. Everybody out. Everybody out. Get out of here. Mom, Dad, Peter, James, and John, you come with me. Kicks everybody out of the house, and they go into the daughter's room, and he says to her, Talutha Kamai, means young girl arise. And verse 42, and straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. <laughs> now, I don't always do this, but there's sometimes there's significance in numbers in the Bible. Now, I'm not all about numerology, but sometimes numbers mean something. And two times in this story, you see the number 12. The woman had a blood disease for 12 years. This girl's 12 years old. The number 12 in the Bible stands for faith. There were 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. It stands for faith. This story is all about faith. Faith. When things look impossible, when things look against you, there's faith. This story is about faith. And here's what I want to grasp this morning. By faith, the woman touched the garment. By faith, the man sought his help. Both received what they were looking for, but it was done through faith. One received it through a touch. The other received it through a word, but it was done through faith. So my question is, how much are we missing out on because we don't have faith? 
If God is willing to disrupt death and bring a girl back to life again, all because of faith, how much are we missing out on because we don't have faith? Church, I want to challenge you. God wants to do a mighty move, but you've got to have the faith to make it happen. You've got to believe. When it doesn't look like it's going to happen, he wants to do it. And we don't have to go looking for Jesus like this man did. Jairus had to go looking for Jesus. This woman had to go looking for Jesus. But in John chapter 14, verse 20, Jesus is speaking. He says, you shall know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. What does that mean? You have 24-7 access to the Savior at all times. You don't have to go looking for him. He's with you right now at this moment. You just need the faith to believe that impossible things can be, become possible because of him. And you might be thinking, Brother Andrew, my faith is a little fragile right now. A little broken, a little bruised. You don't understand, I've prayed in faith before and it didn't happen. I didn't get the answer I wanted, but you did get an answer. It may not have been the answer you wanted, but you did get an answer. Brother Andrew, you, may, you don't understand, I've prayed for my loved ones to be healed. I prayed for a good doctor's report, cancer. I saw my, my best friend die. I saw my mom die. I saw my brother die. I prayed for them hard. You're saying it takes faith, but I prayed in faith and they still died. Can I just let you in on a little secret? Because I know those things are hard. Losing someone you love is hard. Praying and still getting a bad diagnosis, it's hard. I'm not demeaning that at all. But I'm going to let you in on a little secret. This 12-year-old girl that was raised back to life, she did eventually die one day. And this woman with a blood disease for 12 years, she did eventually die one day. What am I trying to say? Death is a reality. And it hurts. But it's a reality. So here's the greatest thing we can do. The greatest thing you can do for somebody is not necessarily pray that they get healed, but pray that they get saved. Because God may not always work the miracle of healing in somebody's life, but he's always willing to work the miracle of salvation in somebody's life. And so our prayer should be, God, save them. God, save their soul. Because here's the good part. We get to be with them again one day. And so even though we miss them like, like crazy right now, the beautiful part is we get to spend all eternity, and this is just a small little drop in the ocean compared to eternity. If they live to be 150 years old, it's still a small little drop in the ocean compared to eternity. And so our greatest desire should be, God, save them, save them, Lord, save them. So my challenge to you in this room right now, saint, those in this room who are saved, what has been holding you back? What's in your life right now holding you back from really getting a hold of Jesus? What is, what is really anchoring your faith right now? What's holding your faith back? Is it shame? Is it a secret? Is it you just have to feel isolated from everybody? What is it? Is it your pride? Is it your self-righteousness? Is it your, 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 uh, your prejudice? You, you, you kind of have to hold on to your reputation and your, 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 your title. What's holding you back from really getting a hold of Jesus? And, and I'm going to ask, I'm going to challenge you, saint, in this room, saved person in this room, Today is a great day to let go of that.